0: Bad and Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy podcast. And I'm Erica. And with us here today is Angela McEwen, senior economist at the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or QUPE. who is also a Broadbent Institute Fellow and co-chair of the Trade Justice Network, a network that aims to raise awareness about free trade deals and their implications. She's joining us today to talk about the federal and provincial government response to COVID-19 from basically a labor perspective. And um, as I was saying to Angela, she's on the correct side of labor economics. (laughs) 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 because I have a problem with economics and how we got here. So anyway, I'll get to that later. But from January of this year, basically the world has been struggling to contain the global pandemic coronavirus. The potential damage of this virus can inflict, or the potential that this virus can inflict on our healthcare economy and labor market. And essentially our way of life has really forced us to all be socialists and so what this virus has shown is how naked our labor market protections are and how they've been stripped by successive conservative and liberal governments both provincially and federally over the last 40 years so um in terms of admin for bad and bitchy we are pretty much on an ad hoc basis right now i'm not going to apologize for that Times are tough. And basically, um, I kind of was struggling to write an article. And I thought, oh, I don't know enough about the intricacies of EI and all of these programs. So why not bring an economist on to do it, especially an econom- a labor economist, which is what I'm, I'm assuming you are, Angela. Yes.
1: I uh, studied labor economics in my master's and I Mm -hmm. also work for labor unions. So it's been my, my focus for the past uh, 10 years or so.
0: That's amazing. And you came to economics late. I remember us. So um, Angela and I met at the Broadbent Institute's uh, conference last year, but I've been following you for a while and um, I'm always, interested in following people who want to think of economics differently from the way I learned it. And, you know, I have my own issues with this, with this, um, with this, this, uh, industry or, or this profession, um, which, you know, is basically moves at the rate of every obituary (laughs) It's the (laughs) saying. So, um, I'm always, I, there are a few I follow and, you know, s- you know, some renegades who are really into thinking of economics just differently. And I would say the last 40 years, we have been, I would say, impaired by your neoclassical Hayek slash um, Friedman model of economic theory rather than with the previous Keynesian model, which is more, which takes more of the welfare state into consideration. And in my opinion, has more of um, a society as a functioning body as a whole, more so than the efficiency led models of, you know, the, like I said, the, the Hayek and the Friedmans and the Chicago boys, and all of those people that we've seen in the past 40 years, which has really, really played out in our politics. So that's where I'm coming from.
1: Exactly. You have a lot of people who basically were saying we'd outgrown as a society the need for government um, and that government's role was really just about protecting property rights in various ways, which means siding with capitalists, right? Yeah. That's who already owns stuff. Yeah. Uh, And what has happened in the crisis is shown that, no, we haven't outgrown the need for government. Actually, when we have a crisis of this scale, uh, it shows what I think the purpose for government always is, which is paying for things that everybody needs, but, you know, the market can't provide. So that's always healthcare, right? Right. That's always some kind of, um, financial floor for people right. like recognizing that people can't live on $2,000 a month. And we have no country, no province in this country provides social assistance rates that are even that generous. Right. Wow. So, um, Yeah. It's pointing out the number of ways that we've failed people. We had more um, hospital beds per capita, you know, in the 1970s than we do now. Mm-hmm. We had uh, more, as you say, uh, generous um, uninsurance benefits um, and so, yeah, those have been chipped away uh, by democratically elected governments. Uh, and now they're not here to help us in the middle of a crisis. So we're trying to put together a policy to replace that um, really quickly. And it turns out that we've also hollowed out the infrastructure of government. Um, oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so they're having trouble
0: delivering. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought this up because I have been wanting to have this conversation for like, two or three years because um, I used to work at the department of finance as an economist. And um, it's not the place for forward thinking. So I was, I was surrounded by these old heads who would talk to you about efficiency versus uh, equity, equality, because they don't even know what equity means. (laughs) And, you know, like the abject, ignorance of the way these things play out in people's lives and the joy in that ignorance was really really wow like it was it was i open i was stunned
1: oh that's really that interesting yeah because, don't go there angela
0: don't go <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely
1: that part where you have people making policy who've never applied to EI before in their life. Right. um, Who've never been on social assistance and so have no idea how this would play out in a regular person's life. But you also don't have, because they outsource a lot of their IT um, stuff because the conservative government centralized shared services Canada, and there were a whole bunch of problems with
0: that. It's still Um, a fucking disaster.
1: Exactly. If they want to switch on the dime and try to program like, Switch the programming behind um, issuing checks, it turns out they actually don't really have the capacity internally to do that.
0: It's funny you should mention that because uh, there was a piece in, I want to say, I think one of the post media papers about government and how government um, IT systems, especially EI, by the way, especially EI, I'm going to put this in my piece, um, was. they're they're obsolete and they're like literally falling apart, literally. Exactly. And so some
1: of the I think so direct payments to individuals is something like five percent of GDP. Like it's a lot yeah, of yeah, it's a lot of money yeah. for OAS, CCD, yeah. all of those payments. Oh, the GST credit, mm-hmm. um, and that's all on fifty year old software that they're yeah. trying. They've been trying to migrate, but they've been worried about something like Phoenix happening with it. Right? So the fact that that has not already been migrated, I'm sure, is a huge concern to government. They're like, we don't want this failing right now. So they they feel like they can't make a lot of changes to that system for risk of
0: collapsing it. Holy shit. Right. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So it's not even, it's the back office stuff too that's holding back progress because of successive cuts of government. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Wow. So,
1: so that's problematic. It's also, you know, the the people, um, the, in good times with employment insurance, it was taking over a month to process claims, um, and that's when they were getting, you know, twenty seven thousand claims a week instead of a million, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't have enough staff on hand to t- process claims in a timely fashion before. Wow. And um, and, and again, I have no idea what their computer system is like, but what's happened with the EI system itself is, um, there was a big change, um, in the, in the, uh, 1990s under, uh, Jean-Claude Chen and, and, um, Paul Martin, mm-hmm. where they made it much less generous. They changed it from unemployment insurance to employment insurance.
0: I thought it was unemployment insurance. I thought I grew up with unemployment insurance. and I thought yep. I'd lost my mind. Okay. Yes. Okay. We changed it. So, this is much less generous. Okay, so this is the major change. Maybe we should go through the history of EI. Sure. Um, like, I, I don't know, if, I don't know, wherever you want to start. Great Depression. Okay.
1: Let's start in the Great Depression. Awesome.
0: So, in the Great
1: Depression, yeah, um, yeah. what provincial governments did to try to deal with. Uh, unemployment was they created work camps for men and men would go to these work camps but the conditions there were awful and they were often not getting a lot of money they didn't have food Uh, and so there were a whole bunch of men that went on strike from the work camp um, and they marched from Vancouver uh, and they were marching to Ottawa there were about a thousand men they got to Regina so it was called the on to Ottawa Trek yeah this is in like 1935 they okay. get the vagina.
0: This is another problem. Okay, how we don't learn about the history of labor at all. This bothers me. Anyway, carry on. No,
1: this oh. is this is amazing. I had no idea about this before I started working. You know,
0: for a labor union. Okay, um, what's it called? If somebody wants to Google it, it's called the On to
1: Ottawa Trek.
0: Okay, and yes. that was during the
1: nineteen twenties or thirties. Nineteen thirty-five. Okay, gotcha. Um. So this, this is after months of protest, you know, yeah. they go on strike, they march to Regina. Um, there's a riot, the, the RCMP come out or I don't know if they were the RCMP yet, but
0: no, they the, were the, the Northern Northwest, mounted, Northwest police. mounted police or something like that. Yeah. Sure.
1: So they come out to stop the truck cause they don't want them to get to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a riot there. Hmm. And then representatives of the government, I think it was Bennett, was Prime Minister, come oh. out to Regina, meet with the men. Um, they they t- tried to maybe meet, meet some of their demands, but the government falls. Actually, there's an election. <laughs> the government falls. <laughs> um, and, Whoops. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then, after the next election, I can't remember who was elected, but... They're like, we better deal with this. Yeah, and they actually end up working with the provinces to implement employment insurance or unemployment insurance at the time, um, and and like it, it actually it was unconstitutional because it deals with stuff in provincial jurisdiction, but uh, the federal government was providing the money for it and the infrastructure for it, so the provinces, you know, agreed to let it happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we got unemployment insurance and it was something that was happening in a lot of similar countries around around the world uh and it went through a bunch of like tiny changes but it was much more generous um at one point in time it repaid up to 75 percent of your income um it would was this, top the, was, up.
0: this is in the 70s though right
1: yes yeah okay. the
0: 60s and 70s um, okay because around this okay so this is what my google search alert <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't want to come unprepared, Angela. <laughs> Let it not be said. So, apparently, yeah. So, 1935, the government passed the Employment and Social Insurance Act, which what you were talk- talking about. Right. Um, which would include flat rate financial benefits for unemployed based on worker, employer, and state contributions. However, the eligibility was limited. Right. It excluded seasonal and low-skilled workers. Um, implementation of the program, uh, and then they go through all this legal mumbo jumbo that I'm not going to get through. But what you're talking about really is the 1960s and 70s, which um, saw a really an expansion of the program because. Um, I think the, the 57 to 62, there was a recession and governments believed manpower training and placement should be given higher priority. So 1971, we get the unemployment insurance act. Right. Yes. Yep. In 1971. And so what did that give us? As um, you, were talking, you were talking about like it, it, it um, right so that's, that's where you got you know a seventy five percent yeah yeah yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, replacement right. rate you uh got top ups if you had uh dependents um and uh and there was training money that it was much easier to get money uh to to do retraining at certain right. points in the i don't think it was till the eighties that we got maternity leave through e i um might have been it's, it's hard to keep track because there have been a lot of t- a lot of tinkering with it over uh the course of the, the times but the big things were in in the 1970s um yeah. dad actually um fixed it made it quite generous then uh in the mid-1990s uh paul martin and jean Chrétien uh changed it from unemployment insurance made it employment insurance Mm-hmm. And they made it much more restrictive. So you don't qualify if you quit your job anymore. It used to be that you did. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't qualify if you get fired. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? And you don't, you no, don't I'm sorry, Angela.
0: How is that? <laughs> what? what? Uh,
1: yeah. Um, okay,
0: now go on. And that's,
1: that actually creates a lot of the work for um, the EI like service candidate agents to go out and make sure if people like have been fired or not. Um, So, so that makes it quite administrative. Like the more restrictions you put on it the more administrative and and there's all these little like um, rules that get added and tinkered with Right. Like, so if you're in this situation, then you can do this. So if your employer already offers a sick plan, then you can do this and they get a rebate. If they don't, then this happens. If, um, if you were sick first and then get laid off, can you stack benefits? Or if you're laid off first and then get sick, can you stack those benefits? So oh my
0: God. There's,
1: there's all of these. And then you need, you know, if you're sick, you need 600 hours. If you're laid off, it depends on the unemployment rate in your region. So it could be anywhere from 420 hours to um, 900, oh, sorry, 700 and some hours. Uh, There used to be a rule that if you were a new entrant to the labor market, um, like a student or somebody uh, who had just moved to Canada, that you had to get 910 hours. The liberal government removed that when they were elected in 2016. So that's good. They made it a little bit um, better for some of those folks. But there are all of these like very specific rules that make it quite challenging for a service candidate to make sure that somebody, you know, actually qualifies for this benefit and he's getting the right amount because you know it's only insured income that counts and it has to be over the past 52 weeks. And your employer has to fill out this form and give the right reason for you leaving work because that matters what kind of benefits you get. So if your employer gets it wrong and writes down that you were fired instead of laid off, well then now you don't get benefits. so you have to go back to your employer and get them to fix it. I
0: didn't realize it was that dire.
1: Yeah, it's really, um, and it can take a really long time for employers to fill out the R- the ROE. So the ROE stands for record of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order to qualify for EI benefits, you have to apply and your employer has to send in this record of employment with all of these details, like how much have they paid you over the past year? How much have you paid in benefits? Um,
0: th- isn't that what two four forms are for?
1: Well, no, because they have to add the whether or not you're fired. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. but you know.
1: Basically, yes, they could de- take this information from a T4 uh, and we've been trying to work with Service Canada to make it easier because um, a lot of people don't get benefits in a timely fashion because the employer doesn't submit the ROE. And and Service Canada, the federal government, will not force employers to submit ROEs and they won't necessarily go with T4 information kind of unless they have to. Like if, if it's been a really long time, sometimes they will. But uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so in other words the government effectively cuts the program because um it's one thing you know it's one thing to reduce benefits and coverage it's another thing to tinker with eligibility and access and you know it's funny you should mention that because um a lot of public servants think they're actually helping people <laughs> and yeah. i know i know that's there in That's that's their purpose. I know for a lot of them, they feel good about helping people and so on and so forth. But I remember having one say to me, "Well, we always say in policy that you know if we're if we're helping eighty percent of the people, then we're doing well." And I said, "How do you how do you measure that you're that you're helping eighty percent of the people?" And he he had like no answer. And I'm just like, "You've never thought of this? That maybe the infringing." sort of all of these tinkering the fact of that it's more administrative makes it less accessible
1: and who who does it make it less accessible for so let's get into that right people who have literacy issues or english is their second language people that um have less power with their employer so if right so if you already have an employer that's kind of a jerk and you're unable to kind of argue with that person, then, then yeah, it's less successful for you.
0: So that bothers me that employers, there's this, to be honest, the way, the way it seems like Paul Martin and the Christian liberals dealt with this is very paternalistic. Yes. It's as though the, the government and the employers have to watch over you to tell, to, to um, to make sure that you're acting in good faith or to make sure that you're telling the truth. And yet, because we've made scapegoats out of working class people, by the way. And so what I find is that that attitude comes hardcore into policy. And yeah, like the fact that you need your employer's permission to basically access benefits that you paid into, by the way. And that's what's killing me is that this is, this is a partnership amongst the federal government, the employer and the employee. One part, if this is a partnership, then why is it that two partners have to oversee what the other one's doing? Right. It's based on an assumption that the worker would always prefer to be
1: on EI rather than working, which is a false assumption. Um, I think people, first of all, people, if you have a good job, you'd rather be working than not, right? Um, You'd rather be doing something where you feel like you're contributing, um, where you feel engaged and and valued. So, sure, if you have a terrible job. You can uh, say shit, it's fine. (laughs) Sure, you have a shitty job and a terrible yeah. employer. Yeah, you don't. You don't want to go to work. Fair. Yeah. Um, but that assumption isn't uh, isn't true, and there's also there's been research that economists have done um, that says generous unemployment benefits um, reduces it. It crowds out economic activity, and I think that's um, a misunderstanding of what. How this works because okay. um, you're not going to get more seasonal employment in New Brunswick because you cut people off of employment insurance, right? Yeah, that's not that's not going to happen. So uh, you don't get people in Toronto don't find work faster because the unemployment like only 20 percent of unemployed workers qualify for benefits in Toronto because what? The, the yeah because the bar is so high it's 700 hours and so. What happens then is people in Toronto feel like, oh, it doesn't cover me. I'm just not going to apply. And this is what I hear from so many people when I talk to them. They've basically written off EI except for um, parental benefits. That's the
0: part that works for people. But the rest of it doesn't really. So how is EI divided up then? Because there's the sickness benefits, there's the unemployment benefits, and there is... I want to say there's... um, Like when you... Uh, Long term care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's split into, well,
1: okay, it's split into three. So mm-hmm. there's regular benefits, which is if you're unemployed. There are special benefits. So that includes maternity, parental, adoption, um, and compassionate care, which is new, mm-hmm. um, and the sickness benefits. So for regular benefits, you qualify based on the unemployment rate in your region. For the special benefits, you need 600 hours to qualify. Mm. And then they're a fixed length. Um, Mm. So uh, you get 15 weeks for sickness benefits. Um, You get uh, 15 weeks for maternity benefits. You get, now they've made it more complicated for their parental. You can choose the longer uh, parental leave at a lower replacement rate or a shorter parental leave at a higher replacement rate. Mm so it works like that, and then if you're in Quebec, actually, they have a much better program for parental leave. Uh, and so, if you're in Quebec, you get the the QPIP, which is more generous.
0: Yeah. So, what are so what's the criteria for regular benefits for the most part?
1: For yeah, so for regular benefits, you have to be an employee um, and be paying into employment insurance on your check and then you have to have a certain number of hours depending on your region. So if the unemployment rate in most of Canada right now is really low, so Mm -hmm. you'd be at the 700 hours bar, um, but there's still some places in rural areas. So they they divide up the regions. There's something like 52 regions across Canada. They've divided Mm -hmm. up the regions and they calculate the unemployment rate in your region. Mm -hmm. Um, But this can be really political too. Prince Edward Island um, had a case where they redefined the regions and it was basically the minister's riding was one region and yeah
0: and the rest of Prince Edward Island was the other region that's pretty <laughs> much gerrymandering everybody <laughs> yeah so <laughs> they were just one region before and wow. they split it up
1: into two with like <laughs> it was so bad so um
0: that was under Stephen Harper mm. oh uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what other PEI instance happened under Harper? <laughs> so Yeah.
1: yeah. So there's, there's like all of these little pieces, right? Like we had people then that were living in one of those regions and working in another of those regions. So they're right. like, so now I don't qualify because the unemployment rate where my house is is different. Wow. Um, yeah, so it's just become so piecemeal and so complicated uh, that then there's an appeals process uh, that Stephen Harper changed as well, uh, but it's really complicated, and lots of people just don't even bother applying because uh, they think that they won't get anywhere. And they can, they can get somewhere, and you can get relief, um, mm-hmm. but it takes a really long time.
0: And so these unemployment benefits are only fifty-five percent of your what gross, I guess.
1: Oh so here's another complication. Um, so it's 55% of your earnings up to a maximum of $573 a week. So they use you only pay you only pay employment insurance premiums on the first like $54,000 of your income. So they every year they determine what the median income is and um so they determine your median income and then Uh, Yeah, so you pay employment insurance premiums up to that amount. And then when you're covered, it tops out at... So if you make more than $54,000 a year, it's less than 55% of your income, right? Like, let's say you make 80. You're still only getting 573 a week. It kind of tops out there.
0: Oh my God, this system is broken. I didn't realize how broken it is. Yeah. (laughs) Holy, it's worse than I thought. I was like... I smell that there's still a huge gap here. So what about people who are self-employed and gig employees?
1: Yes. So if you're (laughs) self-employed, they created a program where you can apply for parental benefits, right? You can Mm -hmm. apply for, I think it's sick and parental. Um, and so you, um, you have to pay in 12 months before you can take any benefits. So, Mm uh, yeah. Cause you have to, you can't like decide that you're sick um, and you need the benefits and start paying in now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then once you've taken, you have to keep paying in. So the take up on the self-employed leave has been really low. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and how we pay for... Wait,
0: wait, wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to go back. Uh, For self-employed, you have to be employed for 12 months beforehand. You have to have signed up registered
1: for and signed up for ei benefits it's oh to pay into
0: for- it okay gotcha
1: yeah so you have to have been paying in for 12 months before you can take any leave i yeah. see yeah and uh for most self-employed workers it just makes sense to to self-insure yeah instead of going through that uh that program um what else was it so yeah so yeah it doesn't really covered self-insured worker or self-employed workers at all which is um, a problem because a lot of people are misclassified as self-employed, and they're really like they work for on contracts or mm. on gigs, and they're not really self-employed. But they're like they drive the FedEx truck, right?
0: Right, right, right.
1: Yeah. So those people aren't aren't covered at all. And they don't at all, and they don't necessarily know that until they become unemployed because they haven't so, been paying in.
0: So how are con so contract workers are not covered at all, well, depending how their employer. Classifies them. If oh, they're employers.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. If they're, yeah.
1: So if they're, if they're like Uber mm-hmm. or Lyft, where Uber and Lyft say, no, they're not employees, they're mm-hmm. contractors, they're self employed, then they wouldn't be submitting um, EI benefits, so they're not covered. Or they wouldn't be submitting premiums, they wouldn't be paying into it. Right. So they're not covered. And so mm-hmm. that happens for lots of workers
0: uh, in Canada. So in order to be covered as a gig worker, you would have to be classified as self-employed by your employer. You would have to be classified
1: as an employee by your employer, and they would have to be taking off the
0: the EI premiums and sending them in for you. So can you pay into it as the same way as somebody who is self-employed? So you could, you could apply for special benefits, uh-huh.
1: but only special benefits. You don't get regular benefits if you're self-employed.
0: And if, how much if you, you have
1: a business though, and you're paying yourself a salary. So like if you, let's say you're incorporated as a business and you pay yourself a salary, you can then, I think, oh, but then how would you, you can't lay yourself off. Right. Like th- there's like a moral quandary there where if yeah. the business, you can't get lit up because I know there's been questions where people have put their spouses on the payroll. And yeah, has said, no, that doesn't count because your spouse can't lay you off. Right. So it's weird. Yeah. There's definitely all of these like little
0: loophole things where people aren't qualified so and that sort of pool of workers is growing yes so your contractors because i I believe that the federal public service is one of the largest um, employers of precarious workers oh yeah they have a whole bunch of people through temp
1: agencies um and depending how those contracts are structured I mean, the the temp agency could consider people employees and be submitting EI on their behalf.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I don't know how those contracts are structured.
0: So, in other words, even like temp, if you work for under a temp agency, you're not covered either because you're under contract.
1: Yeah, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It really depends on how
0: they've structured it. If they structured you as an employee. Then you're covered. Then you're covered. Yeah. that they've paid into the pot, so to speak. Then you're covered. Yeah. If you are just um, a contractor, then you're not because you haven't paid into, oh, fuck me. Unless it's special benefits, which is like bereavement leave or something like that.
1: And you started paying uh, for that 12 months ago.
0: (laughs) Oh, Okay. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm in shock right now because I remember when I was growing up in the 80s everybody, okay? <laughs> when I was growing up, employment unemployment insurance was like what else? You know, you you went in, you filled out the paperwork and you're done. A few weeks later you get your first check. I don't even think you had to wait that long. The efficiency with which this program was administered was honestly an envy of the world like so here's what happened Mm -hmm. there were
1: so i applied for ei i actually got ei in the in the 90s before paul martin et al messed it up uh and you actually got to go in and talk to somebody oh (laughs) yeah and then you're like here's my situation you explain it to them they're like oh this is what you need I will help you, <laughs> so there was never any problem. What happens now is you go into a computer screen or you apply online um, and, and you put stuff in wrong because you don't understand the questions that are being asked and they're really technical and specific and yada yada, so guaranteed, you make a mistake or you fall into a weird box. They've automated the system, they've tried to automate the system so much and they've remo- removed so many frontline workers that there are all of these problems and mistakes that happen in processing the claim where you didn't submit exactly the right information, or they they want a clarification, they have a clarification question. So like you submit it two weeks later, they're like, oh, that was the wrong sick note. You have to get this kind of sick note. And so then you go back to your specialist to get the right kind of sick note and submit that, and then, you know, and it's two weeks later, and then they're like, Yes, that's great, and and check, qualify. Mm-hmm. So that's what's creating all of the backlog in the problem is where where you don't get like the nice easy answers in the automated process right if you can fill out the form properly and know how to navigate the system and get it right it's fast or um, but if you don't and your employer doesn't submit the roe and they're really backed up so they can't get back to you to, to confirm the pieces of information that they don't know about then yeah then it takes a long time and it and you don't necessarily even know because that it takes forever to get through to the call center. There isn't one person who follows your claim the whole way, like there's not a case manager. There's just people on, on phone, so you might get different advice, depending when you call back. We had people during the the last recession who were calling in and uh, there were people telling them, oh yeah, you should probably just sell whatever you can because it's gonna be a while, Which isn't advice that they were supposed to be giving, right? It's not, that was never official advice, but it was sort of the, the worker's assessment trying to yeah. be helpful, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be a while. You should probably start selling <laughs> some
0: stuff on eBay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's just, it's been broken in, in so many different ways that now we get to this crisis Mm -hmm. and it can't handle the scale, Mm -hmm. it can't handle, like, there's not, um, there's not, like, a simple way to uh, fix it. And people, people have lost trust in the system as well. Mm -hmm. Like, it's generally understood, oh, yeah, it doesn't work for me. It's not going to work. So that's really sad for me, which is why the government has come out with this, like, benefit
0: that's supposed to be kind of more of a floor the emergency response benefit okay um is that in that's in light of the coronavirus or in is light that- of the coronavirus yeah and when did the government make that take there's so many changes that have happened over the past two weeks i can't take i can't keep track so i'm asking you <laughs> that <Stuff laughs> is changing every day every day yeah as of march
1: 25th mm-hmm. um they had originally put out two benefits. As of yesterday, March 25th, they merged them into one and they merged it with EI kind of. So if you already had your EI claim processed, Mm -hmm. you will get EI benefits. Mm -hmm. If your EI claim has not been processed, Mm -hmm. they will put you over to the the emergency response benefit, you'll get transferred to that benefit. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't applied yet, You should wait um, until April sixth and apply for this new emergency response benefit because for most people it's going to be more generous. But they're going to just transmit you to that and have you use that benefit first anyway. Mm -hmm. So that benefit is two thousand dollars a month Mm -hmm. um, for sixteen weeks is how long it can be available. Mm -hmm. Um, And it you're qualified if you're self employed or gig worker. So um, all you need to do is to say that you have made five thousand dollars. Uh, in employment income or self-employment income, right, for the past 12 months, or in 2019. So they kind of made that flexible, depending, Mm. you know, which of those is better for you. Or if you've gotten um, uh, pregnancy benefits from your province, or if you've gotten maternity and uh, and parental leave from EI, Mm. that counts as income as well. So if you're just coming off of uh, parental leave, you can get this benefit. So this benefit is a, is a flat rate, so that's really good. Most people would be better off with this than EI. Mm-hmm. You still leaves out a bunch of people. If you were already unemployed, uh, you can't apply for this. So if you were already unemployed and like maybe you were waiting to start a job mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks, um, but you haven't started yet, you're not going to qualify for this. Wow. For EI. Okay. Uh, so there are some people that still uh, are left out, and we're not clear. They're going to have to work with the provinces to figure out if you're on a program like Ontario Works and you've been working part-time and that has been shut down, mm-hmm. can you receive this benefit or will it just be clawed back from Ontario mm-hmm.
0: Works? Right, right, right. And Ontario Works is a social assistance benefit, correct? Yes. Yeah. yes. And um, speaking of social assistance benefits, that those are another set of benefits that have come under, come under fire in the past 40 years, um, I would say workers in general have been basically assaulted, (laughs) like like financially and politically assaulted for the last 40 years. It's no wonder people are fucking angry. Like, (laughs) hello? Like, I feel like it's all part of the same thing, right? This part is just, the 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 reduced spending part right of yes. our fuck upery of our economic relationships like in general right you know i don't even want to get to the production part because that's another story because i would like to see how this what the conversations about the supply chain management are going to look like post-coronavirus i would like to know mm-hmm how those conversations in a globalization context are going to happen after the coronavirus. I would like, I, I'm sure there are people having those conversations now. And now I'm just like, well, I mean, is it really that smart to have basically half the world's production in one fucking geographical area? You think so? Probably not. But, you know, who am I? Like, I don't know. But the point is, is that, I mean, I think what I'm trying to just point out here is that this is only one piece of what's been happening that's contributed to all of this. And this piece is something we don't talk about a lot. And it's a piece that our media sure as hell doesn't talk about. But what happened to labor is basically the question that, I'm trying to pose here, um, right?
1: So, in the in the response to the Great Recession, mm-hmm. labor unions um, were a big part of the of the process. And in uh, social democratic countries like Denmark and Norway, and, and that we always point to as having really great labor market um, safety nets. Uh, well, Labor—it's a tripartite process. Germany does this too, right? Mm-hmm. So where labor's always at the table. You mentioned mm-hmm. it—it was employers and business kind of over labor. That's how yeah. that works. And yeah. there are pieces of EI that try to preserve that tripartite process. There is an EI commissioner sure for workers. Mm-hmm. Um, the minister does have like meetings with 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 workers and representatives from workers, but it's it's just not
0: the same, right? It, it seems is set up. it's it seems perfunctory to me exactly like just as a matter of routine it's yeah. we do it because it's something we do and not necessarily that we take actual input, input. because well, and, and yeah, so there's, there's three
1: yeah. commissioners there's the commissioner for workers the commissioner for employers and the minute and and the representative of the ministers mm-hmm. so the other two can always outvote the worker yeah right so in order to get something done you only need the two of them and so often the commissioner for workers is in a position where You know, they can offer advice and they can try to push, but they have no stick to implement it. Um, So that's, that's a problem. But the way that we, we made a difference back in the thirties was, you know, the big strikes, these huge getting people out and on the streets because they were, they were mad. And Maybe we'll see uh, a response like that again. If I'm here for happens. a general
0: strike, I'm sorry. I know that this is just—I know that this is just faux pas to say, okay. But honestly, there is no other way. In yeah, yeah, there's a pandemic happening, but how else are we going to reverse its fortunes? Yeah, the, the, the entire structure has to change, and we've been saying so. For however long, but nobody wanted to listen because Lord knows we were the extremists. And I was just like, well, the extreme is the center, isn't it? You yeah. know? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the I. Uh, we... And one
1: of the show showed that, that people are at the center of the economy. Thank workers you. Thank us. you. No without the grocery store workers. Like, thank you, you. These people now that you're saying are essential workers, and you're like, oh, okay. So you yeah. do need us. Somebody
0: said that somebody said that on Twitter. Oh, isn't it funny how all these low skilled workers are now essential? Yeah, I was like, yeah, because literally two weeks ago they were um, you know, they could have been replaced. They were negligible.
1: Yeah. But now we've got grocery store workers, supply chain workers like warehouses getting food, food processing. Like None of these are high paid jobs right now. But they're essential so if those workers went out on strike that the economy would stop and now we've learned
0: that wow have we because i feel like i feel like maybe they should (laughs) (laughs) but i i'm i'm a believer in you know i mean pushing boundaries and you don't get anything from just being you know patient and waiting during this time i mean it is To be honest, the work to the, the, oh gosh, those um, right to work laws are another one of how legislatively um, we have taken the worker and made them and devalued them as a society. We've all done it. And as a society and devalued them to the point where... We don't actually realize we need them until now. And so, I mean, where do you see sort of right to work and striking and these kinds of, of tools going forward?
1: Well, you were unrest. You were already seeing, I think, labor being a bit more willing to be militant and to um, protest scads and to have big rallies like you saw what happened when uh, they arrested people on the picket line in Regina yeah national level labor leaders were there the next day in solidarity Mm -hmm. Saying, you know an insult to one is an insult to all and um, and we had this response to the last recession in, in 2008 where they bailed out the banks and I remember there was this common you know the bank got bailed out we got sold out kind of phrase, and so I feel like people are really this time saying, don't you dare do that again.
0: Don't you dare. You know what? at the bank and not us. You know what, though? Okay, so 2008 was a watershed. It was a watershed. Like, we've had, I didn't even know they had a recession in, six, in the early 60s. Like, nobody, whatever. Like, they, we're not going to study it, you know? We're going to study oil, the oil crises of the yeah. 70s, which really opened the door, in my opinion, to this conservative approach yeah. to fiscal matters, to labor unions. I think of the air traffic, uh, air traffic controller strike. Yes. Which was another watershed moment. And the, the whole TARP idea, I think it was called TARP in the States, it, of 2007, 2008, to bail out the banks, but you didn't bail out people. And, you know, this idea of too big to fail. Right. Is, is, is and intersecting that with a pandemic is a really, really interesting, it's just really interesting to me. And I'm hoping that people get a little bit more militant. Um, I'm a big fan of the um, 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 Canada Post Workers Union. Yes. I feel like they're militant. Uh, And, you know, really. Well, and I think
1: they're the ones that started this off, actually, because there were labor unions and workers that were picketing Canada Post stuff in solidarity. Um and I hear
0: Canada Post is treating them like shit too during this and they, pandemic. but they
1: still they were they were legislated back to work and they still haven't got a settlement and they're not getting the protective stuff. So um yeah Canada Post uh the union C P U W. Yeah um C U P W, they're they've got a lot of activists and they've been doing a lot of education with workers. Unifor's done a lot of education with workers. So I feel like the appetite is definitely there um within labor to be more radical to stand up and and that they feel like their members will be there with them yeah yeah. because provincially we've had probably 15 years of austerity from provincial governments cutting back not just income supports like they haven't increased the amount of social assistance so it's absolutely abysmal for people like they simply can't get by on that amount of money there's not enough housing for people um, we're still seeing increases in food insecurity and people using more food banks, uh, and they and then they've cut back um, healthcare. So there aren't as many beds, there aren't as many workers. They're relying on people, you know, instead of hiring more people, they have them doing too much overtime. So they're getting burnt out, and and we just don't. We have in every way that I look at it, we have undermined the capacity of our government to step in and do its job right now. It's like I imagine this big Jenga tower and different p- levels of government have been pulling pieces out of it um, the whole way and and it's gonna it's gonna crumble. Um, can I use that? Because I I, I, I want
0: to use that. <laughs> That's a like great like it's the a great, great hands
1: have been pulling people No out? you're
0: completely right. It is a Jenga yeah. tower where yeah. where and it's not just And I don't want to, when I say conservative, obviously your Hayek's, your Friedman's and so on are more in the conservative spectrum of economics, just as your conservative politicians have come in. But make no mistake, like Bill Clinton is just Mm -hmm. as, is just as, you know, at fault for this as Ronald Reagan. Yeah, and Jean Chrétien is... And Jean exactly, <laughs> like, as your um, Brian Mulroney lib- um, conservatives. Exactly. Which, which is basically yeah. a liberal government. Yeah. And <laughs> they're
1: both conservative yeah. and liberal governments, that they accumulated $54 billion in the EI fund. So the money that we paid into EI, they used that to pay down the debt, and they stole it from the fund, and they didn't pay it back. So Stephen Harper wrote it off um, as a debt that he would never repay. So they owe workers $54 billion that they've never repaid from from what we've submitted to them and employers because employers pay um, 60% of EI premiums as well. So it's, it's
0: like split between employers and workers. Can we just say that Paul Martin deserves no credit whatsoever because he literally stole from Peter to pay Paul? Yeah. Like, that's, like, like, massaging and then downloaded it to the provinces?
1: Yep. Okay. And then, and then now the provinces cut things and downloaded it to municipalities. Exactly. You've got the 2% cap um, that Paul Martin implemented to funding that went to First Nations uh, yes. communities. Yes. So that has... And now they have no water. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Over the past 20 years. So... Um, Yeah, it has been a long time coming that we've been creating this crisis actually. Austerity creates crises. Yeah, we would be in a much better place to respond to this crisis now if we had the social investments in place that we should have had, that we had before. This is depressing. It is depressing, but I'm hoping that, um, that people are waking up to it and waking up to the fact that because we've said for the past like for the past 10 years i've been saying we need to fix ei we need to improve ei yeah liberals promised when they got elected in 2015 that they would but they're like oh no liberals made a lot of it's too, hard. It's, too it. hard it's
0: complicated we can't figure it out da, 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 da. can you imagine can you imagine <laughs> saying that at work okay yeah. like you have a job Fuck yeah. on it! Like, like I mean, they say it better. They say it but that's what it you know. comes down to, is it not? No, yeah. we're not gonna do that. It's too hard, bye You'd have to negotiate with the provinces, yeah, and, and then we have to do it. our job, and you know, yeah. And we just want to take pretty pictures.
1: But now that they have to, they are, and so it's shown that what they've said was not possible, was not within the realm of possibility. Mm. They said that for for years. Now it is. We're actually doing this. Can you imagine a month ago even asking for um, 10 days of paid job protected sick leave across Canada? There was one province that had that before. No, it was unpaid. One province had 10 days of unpaid job protected leave, and that was Quebec. No province had more than two days of paid sick leave before this. And no province was thinking about doing it. So, yeah, most workers a month ago had like no job protected sick leave. Let alone paid. We have more days of vacation mandated by law than we do days of sick leave mandated by law.
0: Two days.
1: We have two days of vacation a month. Is mandated. So how
0: is that different from the United States?
1: Um, I don't know what the United States have. I imagine it was very. No, I'm I, I, well. I'm I'm guessing
0: that they don't have anything. I'm guessing they don't. <laughs> but two days really ain't shit. Like honestly, it's It's not, it's it's not, not. a year. That's for that's for the past twelve. So yeah. Um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I remember in Ontario that they were trying to improve upon. Can you tell? Can so I, the Liberals? Yeah. The Ontario Liberals
1: under Kathleen Wynne did this whole review of employment standards, and they did, they improved labor laws and they brought in um, 10 days of sick leave for anyone, regardless of the size of your business. And there were actually emergency days that you could use for different things, right? So if it was looking after someone else that was sick or you were sick or or whatever. So it was flexible leave. um, And two of those days were paid. Uh, Doug Ford gets elected. And he cuts up the paid part um he cuts down sick leave to three days of unpaid sick leave and then and then separates it out into other the other two days into like different pieces, so yeah, so we went from ten days of unpaid sick leave with two of them paid uh under the liberals, two under Doug Ford none paid, and only three <laughs>
0: unpaid yeah apparently, protected days apparently they had to like reconvene and do an emergency session just to pass some labor laws
1: yeah they, they did they,
0: they, they did ah. they reconvened
1: and passed
0: uh that
1: you could have 14 days of unpaid like job protected leave uh for the quarantine and it's interesting because nova scotia did this after h1n1 they actually passed mm. the legislation saying if you were quarantined your job was protected for mm-hmm. the period of the quarantine. But they were the only province that did that. So it's really interesting to me that after SARS, after H1N1, that other provinces hadn't thought to update their labor legislation. Um, but now they have. I think all of the provinces have now. So okay. that's fantastic.
0: Everybody and, has job protective leave now. And and is that 14 days or does it vary? 14 from days for the quarantine. I think they might have, said, them. Might have said, you know, whatever
1: public health says is necessary right 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 so in other words wow it can be done oh it can be done and so i'm hoping that we learn the lesson that actually it can be done and so when they're telling us it can't be they're full of shit
0: and we should not let that stop us from organizing and making it happen i agree so what how do we organize to make that happen what give us some no 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 no.
1: (laughs) I am a policy woke. I am not an organizer. Fair. Um, but I think there are lots of people who are working on that. Like some unions are. There's um there's Work at Ac- Workers Action Center in Toronto. There's 15 and Fairness. It's actually across Kennedy. Doing okay,
0: that. I, this is something that I thought about recently to kind of tie into this whole thing is the 15 and fairness movement. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to do is just look back at some of the commentary and some of the the um, news articles because the media has a responsibility and a role in this too because they have pushed this this as the media got more corporate i always tell people the media is not left or right it's corporate it's literally corporate and once it became corporate it served corporate interests first and sometimes only it's only now that their their little corporation has been threatened by the internet that they're allowing and i do say allow a few different voices but literally they're corporate and the corporate um way of talking about late we don't talk about labor we talk about inputs to production you know what i mean we don't talk about like media does not talk about labor as people. It doesn't even talk about labor. Like how many of them have a labor beat?
1: Very few. The Toronto Star has had some reporters on a labor
0: beat. Yeah, they, they've they've impressed me as of late. As of late, <laughs> very and then, late.
1: And then there's also Rank and File uh, um, that has like a podcast. And yeah, and I like I, they've been providing some great info, rank and yeah. file. Yeah, but Emily, yeah. Um, I can't remember her last name, but she actually went to the picket line in Regina and provided some really great commentary right from there, which was so necessary because again, no other major media sources were there on the picket line show. I
0: noticed that. that. They weren't yeah. there for Wet Sotoin, and they weren't there for um exactly. all of the labor squirmishes, which is also media just promoting capitalism, and capitalism really just promoting resource extraction. Like yeah. that's really what it comes down. That's the continuum right there. Um the media has been, honestly, over the past, especially 20 years, like it was still good in like the early 90s. But like ever since like the past 20 years, it went to the CNN approach. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, I well, feel like I don't even get
1: anything. There's less local news. So there aren't people that are following like what's happening at City Hall. It's yeah. Much. Yeah. Um, and, and there's less. Yeah, and with kind of a more human perspective, I feel like partly because they don't have time, they're just putting out stuff, and so they're printing. Yeah, it's it's kind of a function of, as you say, the corporatization of it, the financialization of it. Mm-hmm. Where if it's not profitable, we're not going to do it. But that's not the point of a good media,
0: right? That's not the point kind of journalism. But they also play power in a way, more so in Canada than I feel like in, even in America. Like in Canada, it's like they all want to be, you know, um, it's like they all want to be invited to Aga Khan's island with the prime minister or something. Like they all seem like they just want to be in the room of power and like but rub your so yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, that's not your place. No. Okay. Mm-hmm and why aren't you doing your job to be honest some of this this okay first of all these regular border crossing or regular migration is a very good example of how they are not even critical about the language they use yeah and like and and what's happened over labor is that you've seen and i've seen cbc do it i've seen ctv do it all of them You've seen almost the, um, like the victimization of corporate entities uh, mm. that are, that are they, it's like a play. And they're, they're sort of, they're the victims and labor are these lazy ragtag misfits who, who can't get in line and how dare them. And I feel like that's how the media has portrayed a lot of labor skirmishes over time. Yes. I,
1: I do. And I, it also annoys me because I feel like we're often used to excuse resource extraction or corporate welfare where they're like, oh, this will save this many jobs. and this Yeah. Will, and like, hmm, no, you can't only use me for that because
0: we could have different jobs. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is, so then that goes back to this whole trickle down economic theory idea of everything. Yeah. Everything is the individual that's working well um individuals do not solve crises only communities do okay number one number two is like it's it's the the whole idea of business up here and us down here is very hierarchical which is a colonialist structure in itself speaking of resource extraction and also it's just it's the power differential is what yes. talks about you know as yeah. though labor has the power to do what they're saying that that labor doing and labor i can say does not <laughs>
1: like it, so I, it, it feels like I me mean, government has shifted its role it's supposed to be to protect the community to protect people um but they've decided that they will protect people by protecting businesses and jobs. So they're mm-hmm. gonna give they're gonna, you know, cut these taxes for business because that's what we need in order to protect jobs. But no, we actually need, you know, hospitals and childcare centers in our communities, and that protects jobs and makes life better off for us. And so and not recognizing who has the ear of policymakers on mm-hmm. the hill that that there are these really wealthy um lobbyists from different corporations that they go to dinner with and that they get stuff from and that they hear from all the time and and that they definitely different mps would hear from people in their constituency but not in this the the same way they they push back um (laughs) businesses push back quite quickly if government ever wants to do anything uh that isn't in business's interest so government can only do anything uh, good for people if business is okay with it. Basically, is what we've come to. How did we get there? Yeah, well, this is a good question, and and I agree. It's corporatist. It's not. It's not partisan, and it's business gets what they want out of either the liberals or the conservatives. And at the provincial level, honestly. Um, out of the NDP as well, mostly, right? Oh, You're well, still seeing that in BC. <laughs> you, you saw that with Bob Ray. Cause Bob yeah. Ray started off with some really good and radical stuff. And then business said, nope, you can't. We're, we'll shut the economy of your province down if you keep going. Um, and so we've created a financial system that actually relies on the corporations, um, coming along. So they, they go on strikes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if, they own, and,
1: if they own the newspapers and they influence public opinion that way, like they're really they're really powerful in, in a way that no one acknowledges. I don't know if you've watched like journalists be really defensive about this and say, Oh, if only I were so powerful that I could influence people's opinions. And it's like, don't you see that what you talk about That's literally your about? job? <laughs> how
0: what you don't cover like yes you influence public well okay so journalists are under under this impression too that they are neutral and i'm like you're not neutral okay nothing's neutral data as it data as it as it exists in its natural form is the only unbiased thing in this process okay as soon as you start collecting data there's a bias in there okay second but i haven't even t- so that's on the research side i'm talking what you choose not to cover is a choice the fact yeah. that you were not on the ground for what so do in for these labor issues for honestly the fact that you missed the pm's blackface i will this will be the one thing i bring up at every as soon as um like a, a a reporter's like well we didn't know we didn't do this we didn't do that and I'm, I'm less thing about reporters more than editors editors are where the power is because they do the layouts right yeah. they do the layouts they pick the titles the headlines and but it's so, like what adjective do you choose to describe somebody that's frame? the point because yeah. that's how you frame information they are in the business of framing information like that's their business, you right. know, like it's not there. It's not necessarily even to gather information anymore because they don't do that. It's literally just to frame it. That's it. Yep. And then whoever writes the headline frames it further because most people often decide whether or not to read the, the full article just based exactly. on the headline
1: and form an opinion just
0: based on that. So I, I, I have never chosen a headline in my life. Right. Ever. Whenever I've written for something, never, I, we don't choose the headlines. And no, that's, they write it. Yeah, th- it's funny how, like, how many people, people are like, really? And I'm like, I know, I was shocked too. <laughs> I have never, ever. So, I mean, that is an editor's choice. And, you know, the, the distribution of resources in the newsroom is a corporate choice. And, of course, they're not going to cover labor because they're corporate.
1: Exactly. And so the economics training that reporters have is often limited. They Mm. often rely heavily on kind of the traditional classical experts and candidates here. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, And they're not exposed to alternate thinking about economics. And so they, they, they don't take it seriously. Yeah. Um, And, and so it can be difficult.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they, uh, they just, they don't, I don't think they get that the stock market isn't the economy.
1: Well, it's really interesting too, because there's this thing where a lot of journalists, if I talk to them about precarious work, they get yeah. that. Because yeah. they've been precariously employed. Yeah. Um, but to kind of extend that analysis past precarious employment where and how power works in other parts of the economy, they're often not, I mean, their
0: editors wouldn't let them do it anyway, probably. So, yeah, no, they wouldn't. They just don't. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I think, I think reporting should be based on society. I don't understand why we can't take a people's first approach to just economic planning. Okay. But then we talked about power, so we know why, but um, you know, I, I, I've always had these, sometimes I think the simplest questions in my head or about a whole bunch of things. And I'm like, I, I've never actually said them because I have always thought they were too simple and reductionist. And, but sometimes I'm like, I really need to answer this question. If the economy is 66% or 65% or 60% of the economy is literally people buying things. I think it's 66, 60 something. Like it's two yeah. thirds. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's over half. So why don't we just, like, help people rather than corporations? Like, I remember this was, like, (laughs) during my master's, this was the single question I had, and I dare not. I never opened my mouth to ask it because I thought it was, I'm like, there's something I'm not getting about this. You know what I mean? (laughs) You think you shouldn't be asking this question. But it's a fair question, and I think we just answered it. And we talked about when we talked about power and the power of the corporations and who has the minister's ear. Who comes to the table? Who sets the unemployment rate, the growth rate? It's private sector. It's not the Department of Finance. They just take the average of what business tells them. Yeah, that's literally how it works. I wish it were more, you know, complex than that, but it's not. Yeah. It's good that we do have the Parliamentary Budget Officer now. Yes. We're
1: working at yes. doing some more independent fiscal projections and analysis. And yeah, and yeah I'm, I'm really grateful that we have them. Yes. Uh, yeah. But we and, and what finance produces anyway isn't very transparent for most people. Like, it's, no. it's not like we understand what they do or how they spend money
0: or, or any of that at all. Uh, it's intentionally. We don't even know how government spends money. Yeah. Like the estimates process, my goodness. Like even very few people in government know how that works. It's quite complicated. I've been involved in um, some workshops with
1: Kevin Page's Institute at the University of Ottawa and with uh, government accountants that do that stuff. And so I've learned, I'm like, oh, that it takes forever. It has to go through This whole process and then go up the chain and get approved, and then does it get passed, and then it comes back, and then yeah, so uh, very, very, very complex, yeah.
0: And, um,
1: and so, and which I knew because I've tried to figure out whether or not government had spent money before that they'd announced, and there was no way of telling because it's apparently on a spreadsheet somewhere at finance that nobody else can see, at like,
0: hall, with, like after no, no, no. literally. literally. When you talk about government infrastructure, one of the problems is that, is that literally the most important information is on somebody's spreadsheet somewhere in the recesses of somebody's computer somewhere. And people don't know how to get it. Like the, the way government treats information and data is abhorrent. It really is because it's not it's not treated with any sort of, of value or respect or anything like that. And therefore, you got a lot of man hours to reinvent the wheel, which is a waste. Right. And there
1: are concerns about security ah. that people from sharing things that yeah. actually create more problems. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So we don't have a robust IT infrastructure in the federal government. And I've heard that from many, many, many people. Uh, so... And it's it's not necessarily the fault of IT workers. No, it's individual IT workers. It's no how government has um yeah defined and set policy and, and tried it's to imagine. It's decision makers. It's, yeah. Exactly.
0: You know, it's 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 all your senior management and government. They don't the prioritization of certain things above others, I really question because I don't think that they really see the um the adverse effects it's the second order effects of what they do that people um in these positions refuse to look at it's those second order ones that cause the problems it's one thing to it's like you were saying uh sure they've expanded all these benefits but now they have to hire more people to do the background work and you know knowledgeable people too of these forms, where are they gonna find those people? Those are second order effects of what I'm talking about. And yes. so those are the things we don't think about, that we don't investigate, we don't plan for. And like, I, I think government in general should have a revamp of how, of how they even analyze policy, to be honest, um, because they're not good at that in the way that we're talking about either. The economy's changed the economy's changed labor's changed everything has changed and yet we're still looking at these in a way that really reflects a 20th century manufacturing based economy
1: well exactly and stats can um we had been working with them they have like a labor advisory group Mm -hmm. uh, and recommending that they find some way to measure the gig economy right Um, and they haven't they haven't been able to yet. They haven't been given the resources to do it, quite frankly. Right. It's what it came down to. And they they weren't able to kind of jury rig something on top of the the labor force survey. Uh and so we don't know. <laughs> we don't know how many people, you know, have major incomes from uh, you know, Uber Eats or Airbnb or any of like the mechanical turk any of these kind of um,
0: really, really precarious jobs. And, um, and would it be safe to say that most of these jobs, number one, are done in cities? Yes. Most of these jobs are for people who require a flexible schedule. It could be, it could be migrant workers. It could be immigrants. It could be single women. We haven't even gotten to migrant workers. Oh, shit.
1: So imagine, no, imagine you're a migrant worker who has come in as a care worker to take Mm -hmm. care of children instead of daycare. And the childcare centers and the schools are closed. And now what happens? Does your family who has to work from home lay you off? And where do you go? And what do you do? And and did they now charge you for room and board to stay at their house? Like what, who protects those workers, what protections are in place for those workers, and frankly, there's none. Um, and then you, you still have us relying very heavily on um, this migrant labor force to come in and uh, do agricultural work for mm-hmm. us yep. so yep. that we'll still have food. Yep. Um, but, well, those workers are now at risk of, of getting the virus because they're working in very close quarters and living mm-hmm. in very close quarters. And so what protections have we put in place for their health and safety? Um, because they're not in Ontario, agricultural workers aren't allowed to unionize. And they don't have oh. union in Ontario. They have nobody. They can't be represented legally under the employment standards act. Um,
0: so what did they do? I I'm finding this. I'm nerding out with you right now. And, um, and the Migrant Workers Alliance had some really good recommendations.
1: Okay. Um, are they going to qualify for these benefits? Are migrant workers, um, it I, it, I don't see anything in the legislation that would exclude them. Um, but if they don't have a social, I don't know. Do you get a social insurance number if you're here under a temporary?
0: That's a good question. Permit? I don't it, know.
1: Yeah. So, Maybe they can, but do they have a my CRA account? You would imagine that people are paying taxes and, and that they would. Um, but yeah, so are migrant workers covered under this benefit? They should be, if they have to stop
0: working because of the, the benefit instead of just sending them home. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think that's the last... No, no, no. What about single parents? I'd like, to, I'd like to spotlight single parents because I feel for them right now. Um, and I, I actually wonder how many of those healthcare workers are single parents. Yeah, My mom was telling me a story. My mom's a retired nurse. Both my mom and my aunt are. And uh, we were talking about, um, she was telling me about how you know, like some of them are just preparing for death and, you know, just setting up stuff so that if they get the virus and they, because these are our frontline workers, the same workers, by the way, we nickel and dime because as I recall, there was, um, you know, the Ford government was playing hard and was, was so-called playing hardball. I'm using air quotes. um, to to really nickel and dime and cheat teachers out of their rightful wage increases and only because in my in my opinion they just want to get rid of teachers for the most part i think they just want to move all learning online which to yeah. me it has another set like that's another story but it's so funny to me that again with those like low skilled workers who become essential all of a sudden all the people we've been shitting on have become essential teachers and nurses are two sets of people who go on strike because the province doesn't pay them properly and also takes away their benefits
1: well and in this board government was cutting funding to public health Uh, centers and cutting funding um, to hospitals and capping the funding increases at below inflation and saying that that was an increase um, because it was like uh, nominal.
0: Anyway. Does this man look like he ever took calculus and knows what a first and second derivative is and what that means? (laughs) So I feel like
1: Ford is beating expectations on how well he's dealing with this because uh, he's returned some funding um and he's reversed some of his positions but there's still there's still cuts they still don't have the protective equipment in place for these frontline workers um we're working on providing emergency childcare for the frontline workers um but that's that's um if you're a single parent that's still gonna be really tough and you're working you know long shifts in, in the ER but the 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 key thing for me, is that, yeah, we're asking these people to go and do tests, and they're not getting the right equipment. They're being asked to reuse this equipment. They're putting their lives in danger for us, and we don't give them the respect um, that they deserve, normally, let alone, you know, the wages and the support and the, the resources that they need to be able to do their jobs well. And, um, and for these child care workers that are providing emergency childcare, I mean, most child care workers may Fourteen dollars an hour, like minimum yeah, wage. Yeah, it's and that a lot of parents that are working from home realize how much work teachers and childcare workers. I've I've to. seen
0: that a lot uh, <laughs> on Twitter is like pay these teachers because I can't. I'm pay like they're more. your. I'm like <laughs> they're your kids. Though. <laughs> they're like I can't handle my kids. How does the teacher do it? And it it's true.
1: yeah, but no, yeah. but governments across provincial governments across Canada were cutting resources to public health because the federal government had been backing out and the federal government hasn't, they cut back how much they're transferring to provinces for healthcare. Wait a minute. Um, they cut the health, the Canada health transfer? No, 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 Trudeau has started to, to help a little bit and come back, but for oh, years. Oh, you're talking about for years. years. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. been cut. And so
0: provincial the governments. The conservatives love to play with that the Canada Health Transfer. Oh, God, they no. love to play with the health transfer. And uh, so what I understand is that they really cut it. They did. Yeah.
1: And, and Trudeau had not fully repaired that. Yes. Right. So provinces have been cutting and uh, like Jason Kenney was laying people off he had torn up contracts with doctors where they had had a contract and then he tore it up after the pandemic and so now there are doctors working who don't know what their wage is going to be because they don't have a contract right now because jason kenney ripped up their existing contract um and he got, like illegally ripped it up. like it's just so bad and so we have this situation where we don't have enough trained staff in place because we've been cutting them over time. And um, and the people who are working are already overwhelmed and uh, and don't have the resources to do the job that they need to do on a regular basis. You have people at long-term care homes that can only spend you know six minutes, four minutes um, with a person getting them ready. And so now we have people getting sick and they need to use the protective equipment and they may be down on staff because they're not an urgent care center, or maybe people are sick. Uh, so, yeah, so now people in long-term care homes aren't getting the level of care that they need to get, and they're vulnerable for this.
0: Yeah, long-term this care homes, so, prisons, uh, immigrant detention centers. Yes. So what, the fuck, are, jails, what the fuck are they doing? Yes. Like, that, like, from what I understand, Nova Scotia um, released a whole bunch of prisoners. Nonviolent. Yes. 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 It was in Halifax. L Jones wrote something in the Halifax examiner. I haven't, I haven't bookmarked, haven't read it yet, but um, apparently that's what they did just to, just to quell the, the spread of this virus. And yeah, it, these aren't your, you know, your child molesters or rapists or murders we're talking about. These are literally, you know, people in there on whatever pot charge or whatever this yeah. charge or whatever, which is another story in itself. But it just goes to show, I'd like you to talk a little bit as, we, as we're ending this, a little bit about austerity and the history, like not the history of austerity because that's another story, but from 2007 and eight um, onwards especially, austerity has been used especially by politicians to cut social services. Um Austerity is not a measurement for growth it It is literally just trying to find change out of the couch in my opinion. I have read how it has devastated England right. where where council um, councils don't have enough money for basic needs because of austerity and I just wanted to know if you had any final thoughts about it or or what are some of the misconceptions that people think it will do? What the fuck is the point, to be honest? I don't even know what the point of austerity is except to take away benefits from people <laughs> in order to build whatever you – I don't know. And the other thing, too, is like tax cuts are, is government spending. That's yes. the other thing I want to put out there. Tax cuts is government spending. When people talk about government spending, if they're not including tax cuts, don't bother. <laughs> like, That's the way I feel. There are also some things I came out of economics with where I'm like, tax cuts are not, like, don't spur growth for the most part. Unless you're cutting them from like 90% to 40%. Like, there's a, a, a significant change. But 19 to 15% isn't going to do anything number one it doesn't create jobs and neither does austerity that's my piece right and if you're cutting corporate taxes uh it depends what they
1: do with the corporate taxes so it it depends what your underlying assumptions are about what they're going to do with that money if they're going to buy equipment and hire workers then yeah that in canada that would stimulate the economy if they're going to hide it in their offshore account um in whatever the closest tax haven is then or buy a yacht, then no, it doesn't stimulate the economy, right? Yeah. So um, what we saw is that they used it to uh, increase their stock prices. They did share buybacks. Um, and, and that didn't stimulate the economy at all. That's like the no. least productive way. That you can- no,
0: that's literally concentrating um, money into right. you know, those who own capital. Yeah. Like and that's what you're doing. You're just concentrating money in the rich. Exactly. That's what and tax cuts end up doing. So it's so
1: austerity is usually justified by saying we all need to tighten our belts, and there's this uh, equivalency with household budgets. But governments aren't the households. false the false equivalency. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> governments governments are not households. They we don't need to tighten our belts um, during a downturn. Anytime the government can should only worry about um, w- whether the return on your investment is going to be bigger than the cost of borrowing. Right. Right. So it both matters what your current cost of borrowing is and what the return on your, you expect it to be. I feel There's, like I'm going to use this too. Go yeah, on. So if you are building childcare centers to hire childcare workers, that the return on that investment is huge because mm-hmm. if you have quality childcare for kids, it's good for kids and it allows parents to go work. So if it, it, you've hired new people, you've basically brought, um part of the economy out of the unpaid economy and brought it into the the economy that we can't um, so that that uh if you care about economic growth and how we measure it you've increased that and you've helped other people work and and, and do things so you should you should build child care centers <laughs> you should have a national child care program if you're building hospitals um that also, and hiring nurses to staff those hospitals, that also grows the economy. If you are preventing poverty or eliminating poverty, that means that those people are less likely to get sick, they're less likely to go to jail, they're more likely to be productive um, and, and well-taken-care-of-members-of-society, to have stable housing. Like, if people have stable housing, right, then the economy is actually better off in the long run. It yeah, because
0: those better. people become... Ta- like you move up on the income scale and those people become net tax contributors. I think right. people are mostly net tax contributors anyway, but because, you know, if you take in sales tax and so on and so forth, but like you consider all that. if you consider all that, yeah. however, income tax, let's say contributors, why wouldn't the purpose of government be to make as many people as possible Income tax contributors.
1: Exactly. And it I think it's partly because of the timescale of government. Mm-hmm. So if you're starting where we are now and you, you make sure everybody has a house and has enough money to make ends meet, um, they will start to be income tax contributors. It might take a while. It might take five to ten years for them to actually, you know, recover from the trauma that they've already experienced and become... Uh, income tax contributors. So that government is going to fork out all this money to do this and not see the reward for it um, and maybe get unelected in the meantime because people are mad that their income tax rates went up and the t- Canadian Taxpayers Federation made a big dip-bomb display or something, right?
0: So it's, it's Or not- Andrew Coyne writes an ill-informed article. Exactly! <laughs> <laughs> Partly the democratic timescale that's a problem. Yeah. Um, and
1: I I also feel like we're just really permeated with this myth of deserving and undeserving. Yes. And so we feel like if we coddle people too much, then they won't want to work and they won't become productive. So they don't believe that if you have that secure safety net, if you have, um, if you have this important, if you, if you think about things from a social determinants of health perspective, that... Um,
0: they don't believe that that will follow through. Yeah, because it's it's the welfare queen idea. Exactly. Of, yeah, yeah, it's like that is granted. That was very racial, but but it if, also is racial because people think about
1: the in, in Saskatchewan they think about First Nations people and they're like, oh, those people are lazy and they would just sit on income assistance. We're already paying them for everything, so why yeah. should I pay for them to
0: do that's that? exactly the attitude. That is exactly yeah. it. You have, that's perfect because I've heard that so many times. Yeah,
1: no. And, and, I, and I have as well. So you have these racial stereotypes in your head and people, like people will be like, I worked hard. I paid my taxes. What's going to happen here is that someone else is going to benefit and be lazy and use it all.
0: Because and I worked
1: hard. So they should too.
0: Exactly. And because everything's a zero sum game. Yeah, but it's not. No, it's not. Control,
1: it's literally control,
0: not. It
1: actually like
0: expands the expands. whole pie. <laughs> yes. Where new people can get some some and existing people can get some more. Like yes. people really have this mentality that if and this is to the benefit of business, especially, because business has made everybody scared that they won't have a job tomorrow. And they've manipulated us in such a way that they've used us to actually perpetuate that. So now we have a zero-sum idea of what the economy is and how this thing works. It's, as you said, it's like how government is not like the household. Exactly. You know, this is not a zero-sum game where I have a, a, you know, where this particular iPhone, by the way, is mine and if you take it i have nothing there are iphones being manufactured every day and therefore i think i think that's an equivalence to say that we think of this job or that job instead of saying you know we could provide more jobs like this do you know what I mean? I think that's what it is. I think
1: in the, through the process of indiv- individualizing things mm. and making us fight for our own piece of the pie, that they've had to teach us that there was scarcity um, to make us fight for a piece of the pie. But it, there isn't, right? We can build more and we can share. Yeah. Um, it, if we work together.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's truly what That's I'm literally about. it. Like, that's literally my belief. I'm really an optimist. And this is like how I become, like, this is one of the tenets of my optimism. I'm like, we can do better (laughs) if we come together.
1: And here's where the deserving, undeserving piece comes, though, too. Because Mm -hmm. we have promised people a minimum level of protection. We've said, we will take care of you in the hospital if we have to. We will pay for your long-term care if we have Mm -hmm. to. We will provide you shelters. We will provide you shelter in jail if you go to jail. Mm. Um, but we hadn't realized how expensive it is to do that and mm. how hard it is on the workers who do those jobs Yeah, that if we weren't constantly trying to put band-aids on the system and instead just took care of people, um, that we wouldn't have to sp- spend all that money on these really negative supports for the undeserving.
0: And to be honest, so I'm going to add something just popped into my head and I'm going to add to that government infrastructure part. And the hollowing out of government infrastructure that you so, so cleanly explained um, is the move from A-based funding to project-based funding. Oh, yes. That's another problem with, with, with the programs that are even here now, because you don't get the continuity of staff that has the, the, um, the experience in education and have forged the relationships to be able to do this work, whatever work they do, right? And so, and also, you can't plan. Yeah, you can't plan for a continuity of a program. And I think that is one of the silent killers of our sort of infrastructure, our government infrastructure. Is that the move is from? Yeah. yeah, it's huge. been it's it's actually hollowed out not only the funding but the effectiveness of these programs well it's basically
1: hollowed out civil society because um, people have to chase funding dollars now
0: and so they have to chase whatever is popular at the moment for government yes oh Um, by the way i just want to put this in a base funding is like operational funding to like project-based funding is basically funding for that specific project to run for a certain amount of time right and it's not necessarily it's not what we call um continual funding it's not exactly yeah.
1: instead of getting a certain amount of funding for your organization for the next 3 years or 5 yeah. years so you yeah. can plan how to spend the money um you have to be constantly applying for speci- multiple specific projects that meet very specific criteria um and doesn't necessarily always qualify for overhead right so right so yeah so there's um so so nonprofit sector actually tends to be like really bad for workers. <laughs> you know, yeah. benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of turnover. Uh yeah. So that's that's a big problem, uh, for sure. I think in our response in Canada, the United States has a bigger philanthropy sector. I'm not because their government is less generous overall. Um, so
0: it may be better in the states right now. I don't know. I don't know. Uh well, that's why their their stuff is so fragmented or their coverage is so fragmented yeah. is because you have something from the Rockefeller Foundation or something. By the way, I've been watching Mad Men and now I realize why f- the philanthropy sector and what it's for. It's literally... So, um, I saw you tweet that. It was perfect. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> literally... To get into to philanthropy is literally to get into power. Yeah. Like, that's how you meet power. And yep. so... The philanthropy section, sector, is not really about philanthropy. (laughs) It's literally about getting a whole bunch of bigwigs in the room, people who represent other companies, and to get access to them. That's all we got. So I don't know, like, how that plays out in terms of, like you said, the philanthropy section in the United States. I would love to know. I would love to read research on that. Um, there does seem
1: to be a small philanthropy sector in Canada. Like there are some foundations, uh, yeah. and I don't know how they work and what you know if it's if it's even comparable to what happens yeah. in the states. But that's definitely what the American philanthropy—how uh, that works. You you really hit
0: the nail on the head with that. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it was Burke Cooper. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know what? I this was. Like, I just nerded out with you so hard. It was, like... It was very fun. I I was very fun. The other thing, too, is that you explain economics in such an accessible way that I'm sorry if you don't have a blog. I know it's a lot of work, but I feel (laughs) like, I feel like, no, like, you... It's very, it's not very often you need economists who can speak on, like, a normal level and can make it accessible it's a very inaccessible discipline it and really so is.
1: and intentionally
0: so i think yeah 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 and so i always love talking to economists who number one are on the correct side of economics yes. <laughs> and number two who are um, who can explain it in a way that is accessible and bite sized because we've actually mostly talked about the political economy here. And yes. and that's another, by the way, that's another thing that I have with economics is that there's not enough of the political economy. Yeah. In like embedded in the discipline. And yes. I don't know. Exactly. A lot of their models fall apart
1: because they don't include the pre-existing power relationship in the right.
0: exactly. Yes. Exactly. So thank you. Where can people reach you?
1: I am on Twitter at a McEwen and I do sometimes contribute to a blog at the progressive economics forum and uh, other progressive economists who are on the correct side uh, okay. contribute to that blog as well. So it's oh, awesome.
0: Place. Yeah. Awesome. Progressive economics forum. Yeah. I'm going to look them up now. Check it out. Okay. Thank you. We're going to have to say bye. Okay. okay. Thanks Erica. Bye. bye! <laughs> My pitch bad and bullshit.